From Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors, this is The Legal Lounge. Here's your host, Amanda Jones. Hello and welcome to The Legal Lounge. I'm Amanda and along with the lawyers and experts here at Lanyon Bowdler, I'll be bringing you a series of podcasts that cover many aspects of law in England and Wales. It's our aim to show you that the law isn't scary and nor are our lawyers. If you have a particular legal issue you'd like me to put to our specialists for an upcoming episode, please let us know by getting in touch through the website lblaw.co.uk forward slash podcast. In this episode, Gemma Hughes and Caroline York from our family team talk about alternative dispute resolution, also known as ADR, a process that helps couples navigate through a relationship breakdown in a way that can avoid or streamline court proceedings. Hi, I'm Gemma. Hi, I'm Caroline. And today we're talking about alternative dispute resolution, commonly known as ADR. So we're firstly going to explain to you what ADR is. So I'll pass you over to Caroline. Uh, Well, ADR is, as the name alternative dispute resolution suggests, um, a way of finding one of a number of channels for sorting out a dispute or, or an argument or an issue or difficulty between couples that might involve the courts, doesn't necessarily have to involve them, but can give you a broader range of options for addressing a difficulty. What are the different elements uh, that make up ADR as alternatives to court? Well, first of all, there's mediation, which is probably the one that most people have heard of. That is generally recommended in any meeting with a family lawyer, um, primarily because it can be um, a cheaper way of trying to resolve a difficulty if there is scope for you to reach agreement or sometimes it can just help you narrow down the areas that you can agree so that you can then devote your time and your energy to talking about the things that you can't agree on. It is also required in the vast majority of cases that go to court that you can demonstrate to the court that you've tried mediation beforehand even if it's just to be referred to a mediator for an initial Uh, intake session. So that's the reason most people have heard about mediation. And during obviously COVID, how is that working out? Can mediation still take place? It can take place. uh, For the last year or so, it's routinely been taking place through remote means such as Zoom. The intake session could even probably be over the telephone. Um, So the mediators have worked really hard to come up with really creative solutions for getting around the problem of COVID. And it seems to have worked well. And if somebody says they don't want to attend, can they be forced to attend? They can't be forced to attend. Um, We would generally encourage it. And I always explain to clients that um, at the first session, they won't have to meet the other party. Even if it was a remote session, they wouldn't even have to have the 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 other person there in in the Zoom call. It is an opportunity for them to speak with the mediator to find out a little bit more about what to expect. And the mediators also have to carry out screening for issues such as domestic abuse and coercive control to make sure that there are no issues there that could actually expose a person to risk of harm in the mediation process. So they can't be forced, but I would always encourage a person to, to at least explore talking with a mediator. Because there is also the option to have shuttle mediation as well. So if you didn't feel comfortable in sitting in the same room as your former partner, then that is an option whereby the mediator just goes back and forth between you both. And it's sometimes I think it gives people a bit of thinking time because yes. it, sort of being on the spot, not knowing whether or not uh, they should accept this agreement or not, uh, you know, it's a, it's a lot of pressure for some people. It is. And that's probably a good point uh, at which to, to raise the reassurance that If you reach agreement in mediation, you're not held to that agreement unless and until you've both been to see your own respective solicitors to get advice on that agreement. 
So I always call it the, the safe little bubble. Um, we talk a lot about bubbles in COVID, but this mm-hmm. is a safe little bubble in which you can actually make concessions, um, explore possible options, reject ideas without necessarily being held to that. And you can revisit it after you've spoken to a solicitor. And presumably, if you did come up with an agreement in mediation, it broke down for whatever reason, an application is issued to court. Um, There isn't any fear on that person whereby they would be held by anything in mediation because it's sort of... uh, Privileged. Privileged. Privileged, yes. Uh, (laughs) Um, I was looking for the word myself. Um, Yes, uh, again, nothing that is talked about in mediation in terms of agreements reached or concessions made can be referred to within the court process. So which is why, again, if you can try and visualise it as a a bubble, it's it's a place that it encases everything that you talk about um, and you can't really break out of that in court and you have the opportunity to speak to your own solicitor before you commit yourself to anything. I think another important point to raise as well is that with legal aid having been removed for the vast majority of family work, um, except in very restricted circumstances, mediation is one area where legal aid does still exist for people who qualify financially. And as it currently stands, my understanding is that if one person qualifies for legal aid for mediation, then the other person automatically qualifies for mediation, legal aid, for the intake session and the first joint session, irrespective of their own income position. So it's a little bit of a character to be dangled. If a person's unsure about mediation, they can at least explore it. And if one of them is eligible for legal aid, they can both take advantage of that. Okay. And obviously, if an, uh, an agreement is reached at mediation, that could then be turned into a consent order if once they've had their legal advice on it. And then that can be submitted to the court uh, and then the court will, will approve it or, or not. I would say that's probably at this point in time the most common form of ADR that people have come across. But we've got other ones which I would say are a relatively new outcome and whether that's through progression or whether the court cuts is obviously factored into it but we've got collaboration and private FDRs and arbitration. Now you've had direct experience of conducting a one of your cases through a, a private FDR. Now this is one where the application has been issued to the court so presumably mediation has, has failed at this point and an application is issued. You've had your first appointment And then following this, a decision has been made that you would try this. Yes, probably helpful if I give a a practical example of the case I was involved in using this. um, So to try and illustrate the the, the advantages of it. The parties had um, started financial proceedings in court. And in fact, very early on, I'd raised the idea with the other side of arbitration which I can come back to in more detail in a minute. But arbitration is an opportunity for um, a private judge, an arbitrator, to hear the whole case and come up with a binding decision, but not through the courts. So I had raised that, um, that, that suggestion, but it had been rejected out of hand. The wife had issued financial proceedings um, and we had got to our first hearing. Um, We were able to agree, in fact, before we went to that hearing, what order should be made in terms of further information that was needed. So we didn't even have to attend court for that first hearing. We agreed uh, what the parties would need to do to move on to the next stage. And the idea was that we would have a court-based FDR, Financial Dispute Resolution, hearing some weeks or months down the line. Unfortunately, that's how long it's taking. 
So the first hearing was set out such that they would answer each other's questionnaires within two weeks and then we would just have to sit and wait for an FDR date. Uh, In the meantime, uh, the wife had gone to new solicitors. I don't know why, but had gone to new solicitors. So I, I raised the issue of having a private FDR hearing, which they seized upon. And the experience was a game changer, really. It was my first one. A private FDR will involve the parties choosing a private judge who's usually got um, many years' experience as a barrister or solicitor, usually also sits as a judge in the court service, so is used to making decisions. And you pick your judge. And is that quite hard? Because, you know, sometimes couples that have separated can't agree on what colour, you know, something is. So I can imagine whether they might say, you know, somebody would be biased towards a certain firm of solicitors if they've instructed them. I was lucky in this case uh, in that I put forward two or three barristers Um, who sat as private FDR judges to my opponent and gave them the CVs. I didn't encounter any sort of suggestion that there might be bias. I think they took the CVs at face value and were happy with with, with who I'd put forward. Uh, So we agreed the barrister. We agreed dates when we'd all be available to be heard. And the preparation uh, was just... It was absolutely staggering to compare it to the process of of preparing for a court-based FDR because this isn't a criticism of the courts. Uh, They're overwhelmed um, and COVID hasn't helped. But when you send information that the court requires from you off to the court, you've no idea who it's reached, whether it's ended up on the court file um, and who's taken ownership of it. In this situation, we we agreed the identity of the judge. The judge was really uh, proactive with us, um, emailed both solicitors regularly, um, acknowledged any document that we sent to him. It just gave you such a sense of comfort that actually everything that you'd you'd sent off and that you'd prepared was going to be taken into account. Mm-hmm. The FDR judge then told us that he was satisfied with all the information he had, uh, assured us he was going to spend a day preparing the case, which is a lot more time than a, than a court-based judge would ever have the luxury of having. And we had our FDR hearing, which was exactly a month to the day after the FDA hearing, when we would have anticipated waiting weeks, possibly months. I would say months. You know, that is just unheard of, isn't it? So we had the judge for a full day instead of the hour that you'd be allotted at court. Um, It was by remote means. He was on hand all day for us. We conducted negotiations between the barristers. We went back to the judge if we felt we needed more guidance. And after a pretty long, involved day, we reached a settlement mm-hmm. um, about two or three months earlier than the FDR court date that we'd re- by then received. In terms of costs, how much would you be looking at in terms of for the whole process? The whole process will depend on the individual solicitor's costs and what needs to be done to get to that stage. Um, And again, I can only speak uh, for this case, but you would ordinarily probably expect to spend about 2,500 plus VAT on a private FDR judge, which I think can sound a little alarming to people at first. And presumably that's split between the parties? That's split in whatever proportion you want. Sometimes it is. it can be agreed that one person will pay because the other person can't afford it. It might then come out of their settlement later. So you can be creative. It's, there's no prescribed way of dealing with it. Um, and although it might feel as though you're paying for something that you wouldn't ordinarily pay for if you were using a court-based uh, hearing... 
the cost of the judge, I think, is far less than you would end up spending on the toing and froing with the courts, um, the uncertainty, the correspondents checking with the court if they've received things. Um, and there's also an opportunity in private FDRs to tailor the procedure to your case. Mm. So, for example, uh, you could agree between you that whilst the court may demand certain information from you, it's not actually relevant to your case. And you both both sides agree that you don't really need to go down that that process. So it offers you that flexibility, you where flexibility. you're providing the information only if it's necessary, rather than just going through the, the formulaic. Sometimes it's far uh, more personalised. So in your case, you reached an agreement. What happens if you hadn't have reached an agreement? Do you go back into the court system, or would could you have another? private FDR? You could have another private FDR, just as in court they can list things for a second FDR if they think it's worth having a go. Um, you could, at that stage, um, if, you ha- if you decided that another FDR wasn't going to take you anywhere and you were within the court system, you'd essentially step aside out of the court system to have your private FDR. You could just go back to the court and say, well, we've tried, um, we've not got anywhere, can you please list this for a final hearing? And you step back into the court process, or you could at this stage, after a, a failed quote unquote FDR, FDR, you could say, well, let's try arbitration, mm-hmm. which keeps you out of the court process still, mm-hmm. has all of the benefits of a private FDR, mm-hmm. um, and is conducted in the presence of an arbitrator who is registered with a, a professional body of arbitrators and has undergone uh, extra training. They've usually got experience of sitting as a judge. And you can have the matter played out in front of them as it would be in court. Again, you have to pay for their time. Um, but uh, when I've looked into arbitration uh, as, as, as part of the process, I've been quoted around £4,000. Again, that can be split between the parties if they feel it's appropriate. And that would involve an initial housekeeping hearing with the arbitrator, just to check that everything is ready to go. Uh, And then a full day arbitration hearing, a day's preparation by the arbitrator beforehand, where they devote themselves entirely to your case. So the full day hearing in front of them, and then a full written decision delivered within 48 hours usually. So when you start to factor in all of the work you're getting there and how it truncates the court process. It's good value because it's one of those where it's just a choice that people have that's available. There's no compulsion on them to engage in it, but it, it, it can help people in certain circumstances where if time is precious, if they need to know whether they need to put the house on the market or what's going to be that you know six months taken off the, the, from the process where you're in limbo, you don't know what you want to do, you don't know what's going to happen, then it's a huge asset. It is, and I think the delay, and again, I'm being very careful to emphasise that I'm not criticising the court staff or the court system because this is absolutely unprecedented. Um, but the, the, the raw fact remains that when people are having to wait for resolution of, of a really difficult situation for both of them. Even people who started out with the best will in the world can find that goodwill eroded. Or if they're already in a difficult personal relationship, it will just, it's not going to get any better as a result of waiting. It can lead to accusations by one person that the other person is delaying. And even if that's not the case, once that's set in their mind, it can be very difficult to step away from that. So I think being able to resolve things early and with complete clarity means that 
you can stop that process of mistrust. Mm. You can nip it in the bud. And that will then help them in terms of being able to um, communicate when it comes to selling the house mm. or over the children. So I think it can bring enormous emotional benefits for people. So in your case, you did reach an agreement. So does that have to go back to the judge in the court system for them to check to make sure they're happy with it? How, how does it work then? In the one that I dealt with, uh, we drafted the order, the consent order that reflected the agreement that had been reached. That was then sent off to the court uh, with a request that it goes in front of a judge. And that was then approved about 10 days later by a judge just sitting in his or her chambers. Um, But I think, again, to give an idea of the interplay and how difficult it can be dealing with the courts at the moment in the difficult circumstances we're in, we got the sealed order from the court and everybody went off into the sunset and started dealing with the transfer of the house and implementing the agreement. A different department in the court hadn't taken the court FDR date out of the diary. So the day before the court FDR date, I had an email from the court saying, are we going to get any papers from you? At which point I freaked out (laughs) and then realised that I did in fact have a sealed order and just that two two departments hadn't, you know, had had obviously missed Yeah, every solicitor's worst nightmare. (laughs) Um, So uh, there there was a sort of slight dark moment of the soul. Yes, yes. um, However fleeting, it's still panicking. Yes, I can still feel a flutter now when I think about it. So um, it it does show, I think, the, the advantages of being able to run the matter yourself and tailor it to your client's individual needs. I think you've mentioned going along about arbitration. Now, that is sort of separate. You're not taking a side uh, approach from the court. You're almost going off in a a different direction and you're sort of in parallel to, would that be fair to say? You can agree at the outset just to engage in arbitration. So you, you need never start court proceedings. You can just say, we are going to go into the arbitration process and we're going to have our directions hearing, our housekeeping hearing. Um, We're going to agree what information we need. And you can use that for children matters now, as well as financial matters. That's been a recent change in the process. So again, you can tailor it to what your, your, your case needs. You can then have your arbitration hearing and have a final decision. That final decision is legally binding. There was a recent case, wasn't there, mm. the which somebody had challenged the decision and the court reinforced and said, no, you know, you're, you're stuck with it. Absolutely. It's it's subject to the same rules of appeal as a court order would be. Um, but when you've got your arbitration decision, you would still then usually put it before the court, either in divorce proceedings to have um, a financial order drawn up that reflects the arbitration decision. Um, and within children proceedings, there is actually now scope to be able to make an application to the court to say, we've actually reached agreement on the children but we think we'd be best served by having an enforceable order Mm. so you send it to the court with your initial application they truncate the whole process and then they just issue an agreed order so you can do it completely independently or you can a bit like the private FDR step out of the court process if you both agree and if the court agrees that arbitration is appropriate it is still at the discretion of the judge to allow you to do that but I think the general feeling from talking to barristers is that you'd be pushing at an open door there because the judges will always promote an opportunity for people to try and agree things themselves Mm -hmm. and spare the court process of the time and cost as well. And then finally, the only one which we haven't dealt with is, is about collaborative law. Mm. Collaborative law is something that is it's a very specialist discipline in itself. We do actually have a specialist collaborative lawyer 
in the firm. So that's probably a subject for another podcast. Um, but a brief overview of it is that collaborative lawyers are have undertaken extra training mm-hmm. uh, in, in the process and requirements of collaborative law. And as I understand it, um, it's an opportunity for people to engage in roundtable meetings. Um, I think it's a bridge possibly between mediation and the court process. But as, as I say, I'm not collaboratively trained, no. so I'm probably not qualified to deal with it any more than that. And essentially, there is some form of ADR out there for everybody. There is. Yeah. That if they say they don't want to go to through court, then the collaborative law is probably a, a good option. Or if they need a quick decision, you know, you'd probably say arbitration. And then somewhere in between is try and go through the court and then you can take your sidestep if you need to in order to do your, your private FDR. Yes. And very briefly, there's there are well one, one or two other uh, options that I'll refer to very briefly. There's early neutral evaluation, which is offered by some barristers. Um, that is where a couple, usually involving children, um, a couple can pretty much reach a decision, but they might be stuck on a few points. I don't think it's suitable for really heavily, intractably difficult cases. But where you've got a couple who I think are both motivated to uh, listen to the view of a third party and to have some neutrality about it, you can ask a barrister, again, usually with judicial experience, to um, either have a short hearing with you or even just to look at paperwork and statements and give a neutral view of what they would suggest should be the outcome if they were sitting as a judge. Now, it's not binding. It is nothing more than an indication. If the motivation and the goodwill are there um, and you, you really are just stuck on a few points, that can be really helpful. And again, you can get a joint opinion from a barrister. So you can um, each ask your solicitors to um, set out your position into an agreed set of instructions to a barrister who, who then neutrally and independently gives an opinion about how the case should progress. Probably a very subtle difference from early neutral evaluation. I've not had any experience of dealing with those, but I certainly know of barristers who do it and who think it's, again, as we said earlier on, for the right kind of case and the right kind of person, it's yet another tool in the toolbox. So in conclusion then, if someone asked you, would you recommend ADR what would your answer be? What's the benefits that your clients are going to get from that experience? I definitely recommend ADR. Um, I was really excited about it as soon as I went on the first course about it. <laughs> I and heard I a lot about it. I became a real ADR bore um, and I make no apology for it. Um, I think it's. I think it has so many benefits. It can sound expensive uh, when you mention that they've got to pay for a judge uh, and, a, and a client says, well, I'm getting a judge for free through the court process. But um, when you can outline that you can tailor the case to your own needs, um, that you can dictate the time scale that this is going to be run in, um, and that you, you have that direct input with your judge or arbitrator, it can cut down on so much other time that might ordinarily be wasted that I think probably it, it evens out or possibly you even save money. Um, so that's, that's a really important consideration for family clients. I think it can preserve goodwill and I think it, it gives people the sense that they are invested in the process, that they've been heard fairly, that time has been spent preparing their case that all of the relevant circumstances have been taken into account because it is tailored. Um, And I think, as I alluded to earlier on, the speed of the process, the relative speed of the process, means that people can just get on with their lives.
a little bit more quickly and hopefully with a little bit less animosity that might otherwise arise if they've been sitting waiting and feeling a bit powerless as well. I entirely agree. I think it is a really positive step forward that that won't be for everybody, but there will be people who I think will be enhanced by this and, and will have a better experience from from having to do something which it, it's never a nice experience yeah, nobody wants to see us no <laughs> exactly i know when i get a phone call and they say oh it's me again yes. they, they you know they they don't choose to you know to speak to a solicitor unless they're in a you know a difficult spot so it's just trying to to give them as many options as they possibly can uh, in in going through the process And I think it can give you the edge as well sometimes. Okay. So, yeah, I'm a huge fan. (laughs) Thanks to Caroline and Gemma for lending their expertise. Yet more proof that lawyers don't bite. If you need legal help from either of them, please get in touch through lblaw.co.uk. That's lblaw.co.uk. And if you have a particular legal issue you'd like me to put to our specialist for an upcoming episode, please let us know by visiting lblaw.co.uk forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show and find any of the conversations interesting or helpful, please remember to use your podcast app to follow The Legal Lounge so that you never miss an episode. That was The Legal Lounge from Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors. Visit lblaw.co.uk slash podcast for helpful resources. And please do follow or subscribe on your podcast app so you never miss an episode.